Hi, I'm Anna-Claire Harper, and you're listening to The Return, Property and Investment Podcast, kindly sponsored by IMO, a leading technology-led residential real estate platform designed to create quality portfolios of existing single-family rental housing at speed and scale. Find out more at imo.capital. And now, on with the podcast. Hi, and welcome to The Return, Property and Investment Podcast. I'm Anna, and I'm delighted to be joined by Andrew Gorm, who is one of the most influential people in real estate and prop tech, chairman at Newcore Capital Management, strategy partner at Pi Labs, advisor at IMO, emeritus professor at the University of Oxford's Said Business School, investment committee at CBRE, and has also written six books on real estate investment with combined sales of over 75,000, which is, as we were discussing just before, a huge amount for basically academic textbooks. This includes the books that I used when I studied real estate finance and also wrote the most downloaded side business school report on prop tech, which again, I've downloaded and is excellent. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Anna. And thanks for joining me. So I thought we could take a bit of time to talk about inflation and its relationship with real estate. There's no getting away from the impact of inflation on all of our lives, with about 2.5 million people at the moment in the UK being forced to use food banks. It's clear the cost of living and the crisis around it is pretty undeniable. And a large part of that is due to inflation. So what asset classes actually make sense to invest in in a high inflation environment like this? Great. Okay. It's a great question. And I don't know the answer, you know, to be completely honest. And the answer is quite complex. But if we go to the, we start off with the sort of simple way of looking at this. I mean, the answer to your question is real assets are popular, probably because they are seen as a hedge against inflation, which means that if inflation rises, the value of the assets rises too. And we've got some great data going back a long, long time for a lot of assets. And real estate is included in those sorts of assets for which we have long data runs. Thanks to the work of people like Peter Eichholz in the Netherlands and Eva Steiner's recent work based on Oxford and Cambridge colleges. I was involved in a piece of work on agricultural land in the UK back to 1750. And all of those pieces of work that focus either on house prices, Eichholz, or agricultural land, our work, or a more diversified commercial portfolio, which is Eva Steiner's work, come up with the same conclusion, which is basically that the value of real estate has risen by slightly more than the rate of inflation over very, very long periods of time. So we're talking 400 years, you know. So the data is highly, highly robust and statistically significant. And so you get about half a percent real increase in values over time. When you're looking at agricultural land and to some extent residential property, That also leaves open the question about commuted rent. In other words, if you look at house prices, then what are you doing about rent? Well, you know, has that delivered a real return above and beyond inflation? And that's left as a bit of an open question. So even if you just look at capital values, capital values have more than kept pace with inflation. Now that leads you on to a sort of a fairly good feeling about property at a time of inflation. Now, I'm sorry to keep rambling on about at great length about this, but you only asked me one question so far. (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, I feel better when I've got data and a theory. So the data tells me that, yeah, real estate's been a pretty good inflation hedge. I need a theory then to back that up. So because the world could be different going forward. So the theory is that for commercial property, rents should keep pace with inflation because businesses earn revenue and pay costs 
And those revenues and costs are both driven by inflation. And therefore, profits are inflation-linked. You think about just a simple equation. If you're earning 200 in a shop and you're paying 100 in costs, mm -hmm. you're making a profit of 100. If inflation doubles everything, then you're making double the profit you were before. And if you pay rent out of profit, that means that inflation should drive your rent. So your ability to pay rent rises with the rate of inflation. So that deals with commercial property. Residential property should be sensitive to, the demand side should be sensitive to wages. And, you know, wages are clearly very linked to inflation. So you'd expect that the ability of people to pay rent rises with inflation, which is great news. And that's where it starts to get a bit more complex. But let's just take a break there because, you know, the initial signs are really good. You know, property should be an inflation hedge. The data suggests it has been an inflation hedge. And the last thing I'd say is that a lot of idiotic academic researchers have proved that it isn't a good inflation hedge because they've done annual correlations. And how the hell can property be annually correlated with inflation when rents are set in, in arrears when they're set backwards? So there's no way you're going to get annual correlation. So if inflation runs at 20% next year, rents aren't going to go up 20%, are they? No. In three, four years' time, they might have gone up by 20%. But there's no way that if you correlate stuff year on year, you'll get any answers. Okay, that's really, really interesting. And I totally agree with you on having data and a theory. And it's funny because I always looked at it from the other way. I always looked at it from kind of, okay, well, if people are the main thing, certainly from the residential perspective, the main thing that drives pricing to my mind, is the shortage of supply versus demand. So even if demand kind of doesn't go up by a huge amount, whether it's for rent or for to buy, the fact that there's a shortage of supply and less is being supplied than there was before because of construction inflation, for example, we've seen 23% construction inflation in the UK in the last year, sorry, construction materials, not to mention wages, less is going to be built. And if less is built, then that means there's more pressure on the existing housing. So the pricing of that, whether you're talking about values or rents, would naturally go up, meaning it is an inflationary mm. hedge, mm. which is kind of the opposite. I suppose it's the opposite perspective in a way, looking at the well, supply no, side. No, I think there's lots of reasons why the demand side will give you an inflation hedge in real estate. If we talk about the demand, the supply side, which you just introduced there. So, I mean, two things to say about the supply side. The first one is that the economics of house building is quite complicated, but on balance, people will not release land at low prices. So the market for land is not a free market. It's not a market where if the demand for housing were to collapse and building materials suddenly became massively expensive, that people would suddenly start giving land away, you know, because there's no market for it. They wouldn't. They'd just hoard it. You know, that's, we know that is what happens. So land is pretty inelastic in the way it's, you know, it's price inelastic. Building materials, as you say, are going through an inflationary period. So that means that the cost of producing a house has increased and probably will continue to increase. And that means that, you know, either people can afford to pay higher rents and will pay higher rents, or if they can't, there'll be less supply delivered. And if there's less supply delivered, then you'd expect rents to go up. So, you know, whichever way you look at it, you're hedged, mm. you know. And the belief in real assets is partly propounded on this idea that real assets are a store of value. And if I run a class, you know, and I've got a group of executives in the class, say, why do you invest in real estate? What do you like about it? And one of the things they'll say is it's a real asset and it's a store of value. And I say, well, 
that's not very theoretically convincing to me. I don't really understand what this link is. But when you actually get through to it, it is a bit of a link, isn't it? You know, if a building is a store of concrete, glass and slate whose price is going up all the time, it would be pretty weird if the value of the property were to fall when the value of its component parts were, to, were rising all the time. So again, you've got this feeling that it's an inflation hedge. So we're sort of demand side pretty good. Supply side, pretty good. They're both mm-hmm. arguments in favour of hedge against inflation. Okay. And, and we've got to get on to the third point, which is where it becomes a bit more unclear. Go on. So the third point is what's driving the inflation. So if inflation, right now, everybody's talking about cost plus inflation or even stagflation. So we've got, you know, we've got a rising costs, which are, you know, energy bills, COVID-based increases, taxes, and so on. So we've got a rising costs, which is creating inflation. So cost plus inflation is not necessarily good for, well, it's not good for the demand side. You know, we can see it's not good for the demand side. It's just eating people's disposable income, which means they've got less disposable income to pay on rent. So that's the problem. The problem is to what extent will the inflation that we're going through now be a one-off cost push, push hit? And to what extent will it be followed by wage rises to pay for the inflation hit? And I think that's less obvious. So in the short term, we might not see any tremendous inflation linking in rents, but in the long run, you know, it'll work its way through. You know, what would the government do to deal with this? I mean, one of the things they could do is just give away a lot of money, you know, one-off payments to pay for extraordinary rises in the cost of living. They might do that. They're not likely to increase taxes a lot, are they? Mm, no. Do you think that would work? Not that we want to get down too much of a rabbit hole, but do you think that would work to actually solve the problem? Well, it depends how confident you are that this is a one-off rise in the cost of living. So if you take, you know, all of the economic indicators suggest this is a one-off rise. Inflation is going to go to 10% and then it's going to fall back down to 2% again within two years and it'll stay there forever. That's the sort of, it's what the yield curve says. That's what all the forecasters are saying. If that happens, then we'll probably get a one-off negative adjustment to the cost of living and the disposable income and wages won't rise a lot, and everything goes back to normal-ish, and we'll all be slightly worse off because we've been through something nasty and we're going through something nasty again, and we'll all be a bit worse off. The government will have to manage through that. So that's the most likely outcome, I suspect, and that's the most likely outcome for those of us who can afford to finance ourselves through this crisis. There'll be more and more pressure, I think, on the property industry to supply property at fair rents. And it'll be getting increasingly difficult to make speculative gains on property development and property investment, which, of course, would be a good thing from everybody's point of view. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And it's interesting, before we started recording, we were talking about how, you know, people would have less disposable income because they're spending more on other items, for example, whatever, energy bills, food, anything. With less disposable income, that reduces the amount you've got available for your housing costs. Which means, like you said earlier, that means people are more likely to rent. But they're also more likely to rent at a certain level, which is not the premium, not the most beautiful penthouse suite, suite of flats in a beautiful building. It may be something just quite normal. Mm. But we all still need a home, ultimately. Yeah, so from well, a risk-reward perspective, it kind of still makes sense. I mean, exactly. I mean, the work you did, I mean, what options do people have? If they actually can't afford their rent, what options do they have? I mean, do they go back to their parents? I mean, what if their parents... A lot of people are doing that. And there's a generational difference, isn't there? Because firstly, not everyone has parents. There's the options of more communal living. There's the options of going back to live with your parents, which a lot of people in Generation Z and up to even millennials have done. And then there's benefits. Yeah. And, you know, shifting spending 
for example, starting to use food banks more, which is what we started by talking about. So and one thing that's become increasingly obvious to me since I started focusing on property investment across Europe rather than just in the UK is the big difference between the cost of finance in the UK versus mainland Europe. Can you just talk me through the difference and why it exists between the cost of finance in the UK and Okay, well, you know, interest rates are a function of base rates and margins. Base rates are lower in continental Europe than they are in the UK, a little bit, and they have been for a long, long time. And European base rates, including the UK and continental Europe, have always been lower than the US. And so what we've always had is a, you know, an economy that delivers lower returns, but with lower financing costs. And it means that in the long run, you probably do just as well in European real estate investing as you do in US real estate investing. It's just that the numbers underneath are slightly different. The continental European markets being lower priced than the UK market is to do with a function. It's a function of the way in which the politics in Europe is different from the politics in the UK. And I think of the UK as being the perfect mix of European social economics and the US pure capitalism. So we're bound to sit somewhere in the middle because of the way we are. It seems to me that for the last 10 years, and it is about 10 years actually, for the last 10 years, we've had a bit of a free gift in real estate investing in the UK and in continental Europe, where the cost of financing has been extremely low and the returns on offer have been considerably higher. And of course, I mean, as you know, you know, if you use leverage and the return is higher than the cost of leverage, you're going to do even better. So we've been going through a bit of a Goldilocks period really for 10 years. And it's interesting that only a year ago, we were talking about the Goldilocks economy going forward. We're not talking about that anymore. And we've probably come to the end of that run. But the one thing that has maintained positive confidence in the property market has been very low interest rates. And all the signs are that we're not losing control of that. All the signs are that that will come back again, that there'll be a, you know, there'll definitely be a rise in interest rates. We've seen that already. There'll probably be another couple of rises in interest rates. But, you know, all the people who know more about this than me think that we're going to be back down again. So... In the long run, it looks like we're pretty solid. Two things, though, within two years, like you said earlier, about how inflation was going to go up and then come down. Yeah, I mean, that's the sort of view in the US, that's the view in the UK. And we're talking about, you know, massive numbers going back to nothing. And this is somebody who got used to 20% inflation in the 1970s. So I'm sort of, I've always expected inflation to come back, but I can't get anybody to agree with me. And right now, nobody thinks that's happening. Okay. And so we've talked a bit about the past. What about the future if you are investing now or if you were investing now? What kind of assets would you be focusing your attention on? Okay. So everything everything in my head is based on an assumption that we're going to end up with interest rates of 2 to 2.5% and inflation of 2 to 2.5%, maybe 3% in the long run. And, you know, given my experience of high inflation and low inflation, I'd put all my money into residential property owner. Good answer. <laughs> Great answer to end on. I wasn't sure what you were going to say there, actually. Yeah. I wasn't even planted. I, I mean, it suits me to have a few investments in tech startups, and I expect 90% of them to lose everything. You know, and I hope that one out of the 10 will pay me off, you know, and hopefully that will be a mo. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm pretty solid on my housing investments. And of course, you know, my generation are so far in black from housing investors that can afford house prices to go down a little bit. I would worry a little bit about being... 30 years old and leveraging myself to the hilt and gambling on prices going up by the same rate that house prices went up to make me comfortable. And parents have got a responsibility to their kids. And you worry about the kids who don't have parents who can help them out. But then there's absolutely nothing wrong with renting. And there's nothing wrong in my mind having a lifetime of renting and investing in other things. And 
Right now, there might be a whole generation of kids out there who are going to make a lot of money out of Bitcoin, NFTs, all sorts of things that I don't understand that they do understand and they can do better at than I can. Hmm. Quite far from the real assets that we started by talking about. Definitely. <laughs> Full circle. Awesome. And thank you so much for that. So if listeners want to find out more about you or read your work or get in touch, what's the best way for them to do uh, LinkedIn. LinkedIn. Cool. Thank you so much for joining me. Next Great. Week. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Return. And thanks to Imo for sponsoring this episode. Email hello at imo.capital for more information. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a review as this really helps other people to find the podcast. Bye for now.